0: Greetings, rulers. For our 26th Night Rule, we again had a Night Rule of the Roundtable episode where I go on a little rant and then have a discussion with some uh, some very good and eloquent friends. Um, so a special thank you to Kathleen, to Dan, Nowman, uh, Lane, and Mila for their participation in this discussion. Today's intro is by Emerson Kitamura, the name of this song is The Countryside is Great. And our outro today is from Yoshida Monaco. The name of this song is Lighten It Up. So without any further ado, welcome to Night Roar. Hey, welcome, everybody. Um, on a lonely planet spinning its way to damnation amid the fear and despair of the whole human race, who is left to fight for all that is good and pure? And who gets you smashed for under a fiver? That's right. It's Night Rule. Night Rule 25, our second Night Rule of the Roundtable episode. I'm here with my friends, and I'm going to go on a little soapbox rant to start us off here. So we talked a lot about... Education last night, and public versus private education, and I feel as though it's a very woolly um, issue. I think it ties into so many different aspects of our existence on this planet, our our lives, our destinies. That trying to find like a simple solution for um, something like public education is going to be inherently. Difficult. People need, you know, people leave school and then they go into the world and they actually exist in the world. So therefore, like the education they're provided um, is is going to, the the nature of it is going to change depending on all these different myriad factors. Um, I wanted to start off by reading a quote. In my schoolboy days, I had no aversion to slavery. I was not aware there was anything wrong about it. No one arraigned it in my hearing. The local papers said nothing against it. The local pulpit taught us that God approved it and that it was a holy thing, and that the doubter need only look in the Bible if he wished to settle his mind. And then the texts were read aloud to us to make the matter sure. If the slaves themselves had an aversion to slavery, they were wise and said nothing. Spoiler alert, it's from the autobiography of Mark Twain. And I thought it was kind of a relevant thing to kick things off because it it touches on the kind of theme of education and also miseducation, which is something I want to talk about. When we look at the, the world that children are born into and, and we probably don't need to limit the discussion to just children i think i think ideally education should be a lifelong pursuit and maybe separating it from adolescence is uh, is a good a good thing to do when we're kind of having this philosophical discussion i just wonder i wonder this 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 is a quote that makes me wonder you know what what are we reifying in children's and in people's minds in their education in the educational process right now that we might look back on in 150 years and say oh my god how bar- how barbaric were we um what did we misteach what 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 kind of a distorted view did we give to people um and i think discussing miseducation is is almost as important as discussing and trying to figure out what a good education is so uh, yeah like since since this discussion kicked off i've really just been thinking in my own mind you know like what 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 is education actually for um what does education achieve what does it do um and what what can it not achieve and i I'm really curious uh, for people's thoughts on that. So I'll just put that out there and we'll let that germinate and we can come back to that a little bit later. I also wanted to read a quick uh, sponsor. We have a, we have a new sponsor for the Night Roll podcast. So here we go. (laughs) Hey, do you need hams? Smoked hams? Sandwich hams? Black Forest hams? DeForest Kelly hams? Spiral cut, basted, sweet, and salty roasting hams? Wham! We got the best damn hams at Sam's Hams, west of Tacoma. The power
1: of Christ compels
0: you! Okay, sorry for the interruption there. Um, So, I also wanted to talk about um, this book that I mentioned previously in a a previous discussion, um, which is, it's actually quite old now. I think it came out in the 70s. It's called The Pedagogy of the Oppressed by Paolo Fieri. And it's interesting because when this was published... You know, the term oppressed was probably not something you'd be seeing in a lot of uh literature and, and not bandied about quite as much. I think that term's probably been um it's something we're a little more used to hearing right now, but in the seventies maybe not now. so much. Um, and what's beautiful about this book is is he really he really dissects and uh disentangles some of the negative aspects, I think, of of what can be kind of a miseducation process. You know, he was teaching uh people that were Uh, sometimes illiterate, uh, people on the outsides of kind of the society, indigenous people, people living in rural areas, stuff like that, people that were basically outside of the approved kind of classes of, uh, and he's writing this within Latin America, obviously. Um, So I just wanted to read one quick paragraph from this as well, because I think it would be good, uh, fruitful for the discussion here. If I've lost it, here we go. I'll have to edit this out to make myself sound more coherent. Um, Okay, and this is from uh, page 44 uh, of Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Dehumanization, which marks not only those whose humanity has been stolen, but also, though in a different way, those who have stolen it, is a distortion of the vocation of becoming more fully human. This distortion occurs within history, but it is not an historical vocation. Indeed, to admit of dehumanization as an historical vocation would lead either to cynicism or total despair. The struggle for dehumanization, for the emancipation of labor, for the overcoming of alienation, for the affirmation of men and women as persons, would be meaningless. This struggle is possible only because dehumanization, although a concrete historical fact, is not a given destiny, but the result of an unjust order, that engenders violence in the oppressors, which in turn dehumanizes the oppressed. Um, and this this cuts to something that I think is really important, which is to think about what what is the division between the the people learning and the the people doing the teaching. Um, what kind of social relation do these people have? What kind of effect does this educational process have on them, um, positive or negative? Um, and uh, it's a really complicated question with a lot of different answers. Um, I wanted to ask people, one, what, what, it's kind of similar to a question I was posing earlier, which is, you know, if you can think of one time in your life, and it could be in school, it could be outside of school, it could have been 20 years ago, it could have been yesterday. Um, can anyone tell me or think of a, a, an instance in their life where they learned something or they, they embarked on some kind of educational process and, and is, there, is there a memory we can highlight in, in your life where you say, yes, this, this was a moment where I really learned something. This was a moment where some education really transpired and it really meant a lot to me. And, uh, and I'd really be curious to hear if anyone uh, has an instance of those kinds of instances they can talk about, because I feel like that might help to illustrate some of the things that we want to illustrate. Um, I don't know if there's any raised hands already. No. Cool. Um,
2: I have something. Please. Um, it's pretty simplistic. Um, but I think you're talking about like, intellectually. I know something's wrong. But when I was experiencing it, it was like thwomp. Like it became real and in my bones. And it's part of how I see the world. So I had a girlfriend visiting me. And um, her boyfriend was staying with us too. He's this like six foot four gorgeous Jamaican man, so friendly, just this incredible guy. So she had to go to work and he said, do you want some things fixed around the apartment? I can help you while I'm staying here. And I said, yeah. So we went to Home Depot. And I was watching people watching us talking, looking at paint swatches. And, um, you know, they assumed we were a couple. And I saw the way they were looking at him and the way they were looking at me, the way they were checking us out. And so I said to him, you know, I'm noticing the way people, excuse me, are looking at us. They think we're a couple. And I think I'm getting like a different perspective of racism here. And he said, oh, yeah, wait for this. He said, I'm going to hold your hand. We're going to walk around with our hands held. And I said, okay. And you guys, people got out of our way. And they looked me up and down like they were checking me out and judging me. And um, it was so weird. And I realized, oh, my God, people are really racist like that's yeah that's cl- a great example that's the closest I've got to like a personal experience with that sort of thing and made me realize made me think of the loving couple and how terrified they must have been just to be in love with each other and how brave they were and I think it's still the same way now and then that makes me wonder oh my gosh what's that like being a biracial child and these are, ima- you know, these, um, yeah. It just, I, I, these are things I had thought of before as a, you know, privileged white person who's concerned about my brothers and sisters. But not until I kind of walked in that darkness for just that trip to Home Depot did I feel it. Um, so I think um, I wonder if that's what. You were
0: no, that's about. a great example. I mean, I think I think the the, I mean, you were you you would probably be unable to have that realization if you weren't in that particular situation um and the the contrast of, of or the kind of potency of that lesson um is that that's exactly the kind of thing i'm trying i'm, I'm talking about because you had a realization about what it must be for people's like what what people's lived experience must be like in the world um and he as, saw as it a as a te- couple yeah
2: and he saw it as a teaching moment and he said i'll you know wait for this you know i'll hold your hand and then watch what happens. Yeah, you know it was it was that was all. We, it was weird. I was quiet the whole way home. I was a little shaken up. We talked about it later that night over dinner, and when Mary got home. But yeah, was it was in uh, Los Angeles. Yeah, in LA, San Fernando Valley. Wow. Mm.
0: Yeah, I mean that kind of like reminds me a little bit of that book, Black Like Me, or, or um, in any kind of instance where someone didn't have the the experience of of the didn't didn't understand how different someone else's experience was um based on something like their racial identity i mean it also makes me think about you know there's uh, a lot of common there's it's it's quite common for people that are adopted into uh into a family and and if their race is different than their adoptive parents they have they can have a tough time because you know up until age 18 21 whatever they kind of exist within that milieu of their white parents and they're, they're kind of protected from the, some, maybe some of the harsher realities of, of racism that are out there in their life. But then of course, as soon as they become an adult and they're out on their own, they lose all that protection. And I've heard people say that it's a very harsh realization to wake up and realize, oh, okay, well actually my, my parents aren't protecting me at all in this case. Um,
2: um if, if I may add something about sure. the conversation we had afterwards, um, He asked me how i was feeling about it how did it make me feel and um i said what what are people thinking when they're looking at us what do you think they're thinking and he said well the first thing they're thinking is us having sex that's what they think that's the male or female that's where they go and then they're trying to figure out figure out who's in charge who's the boss they're just compelled and a little fascinated for a while
0: and I thought, wow. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Well, people, people are pretty fixated on that for sure. So certainly with biracial couples, I think I think people's own sexual hangups and obsessions play into it to a huge extent, which is pretty disturbing or at least a little strange. But somewhat understandable given how kind of coded um, a lot of racial stuff is in like the sexual realm. Um One example I can I can give from my own life um, that might be that's kind of similar, but brings kind of class and empire into it a little bit as well is um, I remember I had a great teacher in high school who was my drama teacher, and we did uh, one of our projects in our in grade eleven or eleventh grade was everyone had to pick a a religion and do kind of a long um, study of it and and provide a a report on it and. I had chosen uh, the Australian Aboriginal uh, belief system or tradition, and
3: mm-hmm. became
0: really fascinated by it, and and was reading a lot about it, and, and I found it really interesting. And then I remember I was in my English class, um, and I noticed there were some old textbooks on one of the shelves that looked like they hadn't been touched in years, um, but they were to do with uh, like the history all all about Australia. So the
2: Dreamtime.
3: The, the dream time. time, yes, exactly.
0: And Uluru and Ayers Rock and all that. and I, But when I opened up this textbook, which is probably from like 20 or 30 years earlier, basically there was like one page about the Aboriginal people of Australia. It was like, wasn't was even one page, it was like two paragraphs. And it basically said, you know, they were backward, but now we're teaching some of them to be like janitors and, and to like clean hotel rooms. And, and so they're, they're useful members of society and they're becoming useful members of society. And I remember just being so shocked because I'd spent the last few weeks kind of studying the studying some of their beliefs watching documentaries and whatnot and gaining kind of a respect and then i realized like okay well like up until like it's not even not even in the past like literally this book that's on the shelf in my school right now is still saying this shit you know
2: so i have a question about that then is that something a child could flag take up to the library and say this book is out of date or at least it needs to come with a disclaimer
3: Mm.
0: i mean i would hope so now certainly um Not cancel
2: the book. Not cancel the book, but just do the um, just friendly reminder. This book is from printed in nineteen fifty seven.
0: Yeah, well, it's almost at that point it becomes a study of the historical conditions that that led to the generation of that textbook. Right? You wonder, okay, well, what what kind of society were were the people who wrote this living in? What was their perspective? And and quite obvious, quite obvious to me, it was a perspective of kind of white supremacy and empire and and um. And kind of economic conservatism, you know.
4: But Daniel
2: has a question.
3: Oh, oh
4: excuse please, me, please, Daniel. Yes, is a question, or or you based you were talking about um, a, an experience or a series of experiences that radically changed your your view of the world? Is that my understanding? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, well, I could I could write a book about it, but just the short of the long of it, um I think my first experience growing up in the Midwest was with family. I was going to a Christian school. Uh this is where it started. Um was with my family. I was in college and in my car, in the car with my brother and my mother and my grandfather and one of my friends in my dorm was walking down the sidewalk on campus with his he was African-American with his white girlfriend and my grandfather rolled the window down as we were driving past. And he said, Oh, he he was starting to say something is I got to say something to them. And my mom grabbed him and said, you will do no such thing. Um, and that was a, a reality about my own family, you know, that that really opened my eyes. I knew my grandfather very well. I was already in college. Um, But it it was an evolutionary process. I I think my main transformation though was when I lived overseas and taught English in Japan and began to realize how ignorant I was about so many things and that was to me learning is humbling. I'm humbled when I come in here um, into this room when I talk to people. Uh, um, I'm humbled when I talk to a homeless person on the street. I'm, I'm always wanting to learn something and I think even being a media ambassador for UN program was not enough for me to be really radicalized to the point where I am now. It took Occupy uh, Los Angeles, Occupy Wall Street. That's why I always bring that up because now, you know, it's no turning back. Once you understand the reality from that we were not taught about history, so many things and we, the things we're not learning about current events that, and we start learning about what's going on in reality and different points of view and what's actually happening instead of what we're being told is happening i mean it's, to me it's very humbling uh and all of this and it's an ongoing evolutionary process um the whole thing even going into dsa right now and working there um it's very humbling and that's how i learn i don't yeah. learn any other way so yeah you know, yeah i think i think any experience. of those
0: moments you probably feel a little bit silly afterwards you think oh my god i can't believe i didn't know this before and and what a what a different kind of perspective I have now, you know?
4: And you know what Gandhi said, you know, uh, first they ignore you. um, Then they laugh at you. Then uh, they fight you. And then you win. Mm. I've been seeing that play out, not only in my life, but in the lives of many people I know. Mm. Uh, I think that's where we are right now, personally, Mm. in our our world. As activists, you know, doing what we feel is right. Yeah. Yeah. My
0: favorite. My my favorite Gandhi quote is still uh, when they asked him, you know, what do you think of Western civilization? And he replied,
4: you know, I think it's a great idea. Um, Yeah, Yeah, I think. um, Go ahead. I was just saying that was great. Thanks for sharing
0: that. Yeah. Another moment I can highlight is it would be from the same teacher. And I think probably a lot of people have this experience where it's almost as though you don't even remember necessarily. I mean, you, you remember what you learned, but you also remember the people involved in, in, in you learning things. And this is another thing I learned from the same teacher. We were studying um, ancient Greek uh, theater and drama. And I think, you know, going into that class, I had probably what most people have in terms of their perspective, where it's like this is, you know, the great work of historical literature and and people have been reading it for hundreds of years and, and it's just so amazing on its own. You kind of, you just need to kind of bask in its greatness, which I think is kind of how a lot of kids are, are taught to read the canon, or at least maybe maybe not as much now, but 20 years ago. Um, and I remember we went really into depth about the actual historical conditions in ancient Greece when certain things were written. Um, and we'd be reading a play about war and, you know, no other drama teacher, in my mind, I felt would, would really talk about this, but he said, you know, like, this is what was happening at this time. There was the Peloponnesian War, and Sparta and Athens were fighting each other, and it was bitter, and it went on for years. And Athens was blockaded, and people were starving, and people were fed up with the conflict, and they wanted it to end. And, and, and they were all sitting in the audience watching this play with all this kind of historical stuff, uh, all, all this contemporaneous stuff uh, swirling around them. And it kind of made me realize, like, even if you're looking at something from thousands of years ago it still has a historical context it's still grounded in reality and it's not this kind of high piece of art that somehow transcends history um and it really helped me kind of embrace studying um the kind of historical context of literature a lot more Um,
2: lane has a question
0: please lane thank you kathleen lane you
2: want to unmute yourself
1: hello 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 uh it's more of an observation um pretty much based on what Kathleen's experience with, like but um my appearance i'm not I'm not of colour, but I might as well be because I don't look um whats the word normative conventional I have a rather unconventional look I'm basically as wide as I am tall because I'm not very tall and I'm quite wide. Um, but it's like growing up, um, it was difficult. It was difficult being around my peers in situations where there were strangers. And I've, oddly, I I've found a lot of the time being on my own was less stressful because people are inquisitive and they. Like I've I've met some great people just by being on my own. People just thinking that that lad looks odd. I wonder what he's like. And I don't mind that because then they come over and they find out what I'm like, and I tend to get a positive response. But when your friends are there and they get that defensive need to like redress any sort of slight aimed towards you, it it can be it can be slightly patronizing. Well, I like to commend Kathleen for what she did by not saying anything and not joining in. Because sometimes that's going to make the the victim of the abuse feel worse. Um, I've oddly enough surrounded myself with beautiful people all my life, <laughs> but they um, they're the very they're very quick to escalate things that if I just ignored, no matter how upsetting, if I, it was it was it was less upsetting to let things slide and just think I'd be. I was taught something years ago. People who have a people who like feel that way about something different or something odd they've got something within themselves that they need to get over basically so i used yeah. to pity people who were like abusive because of my appearance yeah. um and it's a strange it's a strange thing to tell people you know are uh, have all the best intentions at heart yeah. because they love you you've known them for years or whatever it's i've fallen. i with these incidents with other people, where I've had abuse levelled at us for no reason other than my appearance, I've actually had more fallout with my own friends over stuff like that than the the grief caused by the actual comments made by the abuser. You know, so because yeah. it is, it's it, it can escalate things beyond. People are just curious, but when it comes to race and blocks of. Different, like, um, like a target block of abuse, you look a certain way, which fits a certain stereotype. There we go. We've got something to aim at. Um, it's dangerous, man. Very dangerous. And it's a day because it's, it's, you know, it's, it, can, it can actually feel patronizing mm-hmm. to have your friends
0: leap to your defense. Like, it's almost disempowering in some instances. I bet it feels that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: certainly. So, like, um, I don't know. As a result, I've like my best mates are of colour because they've grown up in around these parts where it's it's like ninety eight point nine 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 percent white. So, there are not very many people of colour where I live where I live. So though we gravitate towards each other in a sort of like not not so much as a as a protective not collective, but more like a, like yeah, we know the score, you know, they're just they're just arseholes. But I have lost yeah. friends who of colour. Who've moved away from the northeast because of the abuse, mm. and that's upsetting because I've purely through, and it's their choice. The, 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 like one of my best, one of my best friends, she's my little Padawan Amira. Uh, she was in the air cadets with us, and she used to get physically abused and and mentally abused as a kid by the local kids because she was Muslim and what we call in Britain a half caste. Mm. hideous phrase, but um. She, all she she's great she got successful and stuff and moved to london where it's more cosmopolitan but she decided to do that because she felt angry towards someone and she'd never she'd never she got to a stage for the first time in life where she was so sick of some abuse for no reason i think she was just shopping somewhere with her mom my mom's wife which didn't help um, and uh she she went she fell on, the first time she felt physically like she wanted to hit someone and she's not that type of person. And so she thought, well, I, need, I can get out of this. So she did, she left her of London. She's, she's a successful lass and it's brilliant, but there's that distance there that we yeah. we were very close and it shouldn't have happened, so that that sort of angers you. But um, you know, I learned very early on to sort of accept people sticking up for you. I, I, I can see, I can see things before they happen. There's a lot of the time you can see when things are going to go like, like this is judgmental, but you can see certain people are going to judge you. You're going to, you think, aye, aye, ay, they're going to say something. You can just see the way mm. that they're, they're sort of edging towards you and the sort of.
0: Oh, the nonverbal cues clock. are very easy to pick up. I'm sure you know. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but then things like that, you can head it off, and you can divert because you know you you don't want your mess to kick off. <laughs> Because there've been fights on my behalf, which I've—I'm not a violent man. to detest them. I don't, I'm not. A, I don't like fights. Um. Yes. Yeah, so I think it's speak, It's not. It's not. It's a human thing. Um. It's a fear of. It's a fear of the unknown, the different. Mm. Um, I
0: think it's a fear of it. I think it's a hyper awareness of difference. Um. I yeah. think it, it, people get really uncomfortable when they're in, like say say if you're in kind of the in group you don't know, they might not know how to properly react, but ultimately I think it stems mostly initially, at least from, from a hyper awareness yeah. from someone different coming in the room and everyone, everyone's everyone kind of standing up a little straighter and going, oh, okay, hold on. I'm really, really aware that there's a significant difference here right now. And I wonder I how much that- of that difference is actually learned or, or how much of it is, is, is kind of comes naturally to people. Cause I suspect that much of it is actually a learned behavior. Rather than I, something No,
1: that I, 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 I think it's the opposite. You think so? Yeah, because being disabled, obviously, I spend a lot of time in hospital. I've got very poor mobility. So, but what you get people who whose job it is to be around people with conditions similar to mine and assist them, some are just get on with it, it's fine. But others, they do talk to you like you're, you're, you're deaf just because mm. you can't walk properly. Mm. hello are you all right Mm. come on yeah and it's like so it's it's and you but it's not they are the nicest most beautiful people for doing what they do Mm. but well
0: i mean they could probably learn to do it a little more kindly i mean i think i think a lot of people in your situation would find it and this is at least my experience um i think it's refreshing when people Like, for example, I had a coworker who was actually someone I managed. I I just managed kind of a small team of one at a job a few years ago. And, um, the guy I managed was in a chair. He'd been in a chair his whole life, um, had a pretty severe disability, had a a full-time caregiver with him at all times. I never once fucking asked him what he had, or or we never talked about it once. I just tried to treat him exactly like I would anyone else, you know, um, he was a really great guy and and to be honest i still have no idea what what his condition was because as, as far as i was concerned like it wouldn't be interesting or helpful for me to ask him about that you know like yeah, yeah, yeah. we're there to do a job i think i think a lot of people ideally at least as an ideal want to be treated um just as as much as like everyone else as they can be you know
1: well, just as little mm, just as little
0: exactly yeah yeah,
1: not to be not. Uh, just, it's like, but that's why I do. Like I keep bringing this up regarding sort of progressive politics and stuff. That's why I love the kids that have this, this this current crop of kids because they, on the whole, even around here, are blissfully unaware of the the importance of like oh well, right? Like, not not the importance, but the
0: significance. Yeah.
1: They, they don't. They don't. They don't see the barriers that we saw. They don't have that ingrained, and um, like people, and I, I'm guilty myself. When I was young, of you know, when you're a kid and you, I used to abuse disabled people as a kid verbally. Ah, oh, you daft old, whatever you, blah blah blah. And kids these days, you don't see that. Hmm. There seems to be a lot more respect shown to people who are different. Um might be just a, a, a personal observation but there seems to be a lot more acceptance of people's differences than there was when I was a kid and including myself. Like the if you just think like the the, the uh, a lot of people my age group who are now like really progressive and lefty and stuff, we often discuss how fucking we really embarrassed by a lot of our jokes when we're kids. Mm. Deeply racist, deeply offensive. Deeply misogynist, yeah. And we've 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 chucked all that off, and our kids are being taught, and so sort of my generation's kids, are, I see personally, are being taught to not regard those things in any way. And just like people are different, And hmm. um, that's why I don't mind kids who are curious if I'm on public transport or whatever. The, what, like just little little phrase like "Why are you so fat." They're, they just want to know. It's not an abusive term. They've not seen someone like me or why you're so small. And I love saying, well, why have you got brown hair? Mm. Or why have you... But well, then the parents tend to step in and make things worse by the, the sort of like, don't talk to him.
3: Mm. And
1: don't, don't be so nasty. It's like, you're not mm. being nasty, you're being inquisitive. That's mm. what kids do.
0: Yeah, I think I think sometimes people um, are so hyper aware and, and so anxious, especially, again, if they're in the in group and they maybe feel a little bit of guilt about that or they, they don't know how to handle that, that they'll just avoid contact, which only furthers, you know, only furthers the issue. I think I think one of the main aspects of this kind of miseducation that we're talking about vis-a-vis um, treating people that are, that may have cosmetic differences the same as anyone else is you know, not seeing certain types of people in your daily life. If you grow up in a certain place, um, you know, having, having kind of different groups bifurcated and and sectioned off. Um, I think inclusiveness is a, is a really key element of kind of overcoming this, this miseducation that's, that's, that can, that can take place. Um, Mm -hmm. but in some ways we're actually getting more bifurcated, like certainly along class lines, um, people who are wealthy really like have no interaction with anyone else and vice versa now whereas you know 20-30 years ago at least they'd all be lining up in the same in the same line at uh, Disney
1: World or something right in in Britain at least 20 or 30 years ago during the Brit pop stroke Cool Britannia bullshit it was actually trendy to be working class Well, you, you had people of wealth or middle, upper middle class affected northern accents and wearing partners and Looking indie and scruffy and yeah, it's like why it's, it's, it's why I don't react like some of the it's like a lot of the punk scene annoys me now because it's all like trendy kids trying to be yeah look at me I'm like nah you know that's not what punk was about and it's also during the Britpop era when a lot of working class bands made it from regions that weren't usually weren't usually accepted in like entertainment in the media world. Um, like no, nah, don't like just way like Common people, by um, Paul and Jarvis Cocker. That song just says it all. I want to live like common people like you. It's like it's a, it's like being common or living in a rough area. In the nineties, it was like a, like it was going to Disney. Mm. Ooh, that's a, it. Oh, Yeah, yeah, that's oh, amazing. That oh, how bohemian! Yeah, yeah, really bohemian when you've got a fucking well you wash your children and washing up liquid in the bath because you can't I, afford shampoo
0: <laughs> i mean that that dynamic exists in a lot of different ways like i think um even just like a, to, to to try and like speak to my own experience like um you know i think well maybe this isn't my own experience but things i've been thinking about like um you see the same thing with race to a certain extent as well like if there's like a person, if 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 you've never really met, say say for example, a black person your whole life, and then all of a sudden you do, I think I think there's actual actually an unconscious thing that can happen with some people where they say, oh, "Okay, well, if this black person likes me, that means I'm cool," <laughs> just because yeah. they've associated being cool and music and all these things with blackness, and and kind of mm-hmm. like say for example, in my case, a white person. If they maybe weren't thinking very well, they would say, oh, okay, well, I can actually, like, feel better about myself because now I have this black friend who yes. told me that they like the same kind of rap as me, and I'm kind of – I, I get that little ego boost. And then I think the same thing can happen – or a similar thing can happen with um, with the person who's kind of in the out group vis-a-vis. Like, one, one of my favorite podcasts, Champagne Sharks, they talk about this a lot, um, and I'm going to be having tea back on Night Rule really again soon, I hope. Um, he he mentions how oftentimes it can be really awkward as a black person. If you're, say you're at a party and you're the only black person there, it's actually a lot easier than if there's a second black person that shows up because there, he talks a lot about how there could be this weird thing where those two people are then kind of vying for attention or vying for some kind of place or status within mm-hmm. the, the dominant group. Um, and I really wonder like how we can dismantle a lot of these subtextual and unconscious and social kind of non formalized uh like understandings and and this this miseducation that people have where they realize just by nature of the world they live in and and the experience within it that okay well I am actually here on this hierarchy this person's there um and I'm I'm really glad we're having this discussion this isn't exactly where I thought it would go but I think I think this is exactly the kind of thing we should be talking about when it comes to education because um,
1: it, it, it can it's, be it, it, it can be manipulated to your own advantage though
0: absolutely yeah absolutely
1: because part of the gimmick of when I was in the band we were very in the North East we were very successful and part of the gimmick was me appearance and, and I played on it a lot of the time like uh, some of the sure. best compliments were stuff like I thought you were the roadie testing the mics I don't expect a little dwarf basically a little fat dwarf to be front of the funk band and dancing around like a, a madman and singing his tits off mm. you just don't expect it and like so that we try we which would actually try to market that as well as that's we, 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 no, a long story but anyhow um but it's like it can be worked to your advantage in certain scenarios
0: Oh, I mean, we're seeing that all over the place in terms of kind of the, the glitterati and the, and the commentary, at say on Twitter, where they say, okay, well, this is my identity. I'm going to cash in on that because people are yeah. going to listen to me. And actually, to be honest, I want to delve a lot more into this whole question of representation and identity. I think, I think that's a whole nother hour long discussion. I know Mila has her hand up. Mila, do you want to chime in really quick? We have about 10 that more was, minutes.
3: Uh, yeah. Thank you. Um, I just have a quick question for Lane. I'm, I'm wondering about your music. Uh, did you do you have any recordings of the of your music when you were in the band and um... yeah
1: yeah I'll post it on um I'll post it in the chat after after this section you will um, do you
3: intend to is that what you're on saying?
1: SoundCloud
3: or or you've already posted it
1: I will do in a bit I'll I'll do it the, after this
3: oh excellent and what yeah. kind of a what kind of a band uh, was it. And are you going to get the band back together again at some point?
1: Oh, that's a lot. No, no, that's not going to happen. But um, we all guitarists, and we'll, we're always planning to do something. What it'll be, I don't know. But the band's long gone. at all, it was, a, it was a bad end. Not, per, yeah. like, not nothing, it was, it was a, it was a slow end. And it was just a result of one of the, the our band members dying. That's all. It was more like a, a slow collapse than a, Nobody fell out. It wasn't like a a nasty end, just a bad one. Um, We've
2: got uh, ten minutes left. If anybody else wants to pitch in, yeah. or if you want to segue yeah. to something else, it would yeah. be a, a, well, a, a uh, time now.
0: If anyone else wants to chime in, we'll do that, and then I can, can wind us down. Yeah, I just, thank you, can, Kathleen. Go ahead.
3: Can I just uh, ask? So, what um, did you write uh, songs or yeah. sing?
1: Or I was the vocalist and wrote all the music. Well, wrote the songs and the melodies to some extent all of them basically but um the guitar like the 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 band all obviously chipped in with their own influences it wasn't like whatever pre-planned stuff it was all pretty much we jammed until we got something going then wrote stuff around it would you
0: say would you say lane that that being in the band was was an instance where a lot of these these questions and these problems and these anxieties and, and this awareness of differences were kind of dissolved and and were meaningless to people.
1: Not just dissolved, but sometimes made people like a bouncer. I, I once one gig, t- a bouncer tried to pull me off the stage at one gig because he thought I'd stormed the stage. Mm. But I'm not I'm not the average frontman, and he and the compliment at the end. Was what, at the end of the gig, he actually lifted us off the stage, carried us, mm. and that was like that was a good thing. Big, big, bouncer guy. Like it's like you can change perceptions. Mm. And i sounds like cheesy, but I've inspired people to form their own bands. If that, they've actively come up and told us since. Mm. So it's like yeah, it's 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 it was sort of cathartic and a means of just shoving everything back out and not not retaining stuff basically.
0: I think that's a really interesting question, too, a really key point. Like, I think uh, this came up when Professor Julie Rack was on Night Rule as well, um, because I, you know, I studied with her in back in 2002. And then all of a sudden, 20 years later, I'm inviting her on my podcast. And I said to her, you know, I guess I guess that class really had an effect on me. And she said, you know, that's great to hear because you don't always know. And I think I think probably one of the most exhilarating aspects of any kind of educational process is when someone realizes, okay, wow, I had a part in showing something to someone that was really meaningful for them in their life. Yeah. Um, you know, like I, I had the same feeling when I was watching that Richard Dreyfus movie, uh, Mr. Holland's opus. And I said to myself, wow, this is really cheesy. I'm really glad I learned that, uh, no, sorry, terrible joke. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna wind us down here. Um, there was another question I'd posed before the education discussion started yesterday, which is actually kind of related to uh, the movie that I've chosen for the first night rule watch party. I don't know when it's going to be; it should be scheduled in the next few weeks. Um, but just in case anyone had uh, had thought about that and wanted to chime in, the question was: um, if you could, and this is separate from the education discussion. Um, if you could pick one memory in the afterlife to live out for all eternity. Um, what would you pick and could you pick something? Um, And previously I had mentioned a a time where I had this very happy memory of having some friends over at my apartment several years ago, and and there was just, um, I don't know if it was the inebriation kind of heightening the experience, but there was one moment where I was just returning from going outside and smoking, and and the hallway was super, super dead and quiet. And as I opened the door, all the sounds of of frivolity and, and joy just kind of like poured out of the doorway, and I just felt so happy in that moment. And I think it was probably the contrast of the, of the silence um, mixed with the, the jovial atmosphere. Um, and because I'd mentioned that as another topic, I wanted, I wanted to give anyone else a chance that, uh, if, if they had something along those lines that they wanted to share. But, uh, but if not, I'll just do a little poetry reading and we can wrap things up. You're not prepared, are you? Nobody read. <laughs> That's okay um okay does anyone else want to does anyone else want to chime in go ahead
2: yeah myla
3: i think she has a question sure just one thing isaac not a question but i was so happy that you asked that question because about uh a a moment because all of a sudden it just i started thinking of a lot of happy memories so it's a wonderful question in terms of getting people to think positive and about Mm. things that, that uh were wonderful in their lives
0: yeah that was that was part of the reason behind it i mean i think also when you when you break things down to kind of an individual moment or a, a kind of a particular coordinate on the timeline it can kind of um it's a little easier to kind of uh, tease out maybe what's uh, what's most important there um so and that will be a theme of the first film we <laughs> do for the watch party eventually once i have my shit together and we do that
2: and I think Daniel wants to get in the last oh, yeah. word here.
0: Now, man, hit me.
4: I just want to say uh, thanks for, for this uh, subject matter and for doing this today, because it's important to be able to uh, get to know each other more. That's basically what we're doing, is we're getting to know each other the more we share our stories with one another and we learn from each other. I appreciate that. And just as on a positive note, um music is transformational is radically transformational you I know mean, I've, I've been a musician my entire life but yeah it's it's transformational it's it's done more than anything else actually uh in my own personal life to make me see that there actually really is hope and that we can be utopian and, and as we go forward and we don't have to you know be uh living in a dystopic world and we can actually address that through music and through the arts so thank you for bringing that up
0: Absolutely agree. Yes. Thank you, Lane. Much appreciated. Um, thank you, Dan. Thank you, Kathleen, Myla. Um, really appreciate everyone's participation. I really enjoy these um, these special roundtable episodes. I'm really interested in breaking down kind of um, what I think can be a little bit of a top down kind of, you know, listen to me kind of passivity in, in the podcast space. So um, So we'll definitely be doing this again sometime. Um, does anyone want the final word before I, uh, before I read again from the 14th century poet Kabir? Okay, no, we will go then. This is uh, poem number 16 from the Kabir book, 44 of the Ecstatic Poems of Kabir, by uh, versions by Robert Bly, and it goes as such. The flute of interior time is played whether we hear it or not. What we mean by love is its sound coming in. When love hits the farthest edge of excess, it reaches a wisdom, and the fragrance of that knowledge. It penetrates our thick bodies. It goes through walls. Its network of notes has a structure as if a million suns were arranged inside. This tune has truth in it. Where else have you heard a sound like this? And I'm glad. I'm glad, Dan. You mentioned the, about talked about music because I think that's very apropos. Um. Okay, well, we got, uh, we're running up to the edge of our time here, um, and my headphones have been beeping in my ear because they're low battery for this entire hour, so um, I should probably charge them. But um, I'll just again thank everyone for listening. Thank you so much, Kathleen and uh, Lane and Daniel and Mila for uh, your thoughts. And, uh, yeah, always great to, uh, to talk to you guys and, and uh, have you participate in these, uh, these Night Rule of the Roundtable episodes. Thanks so much, everybody.